welcome to International Relations Sensations brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. My name is Natalia Latau and tonight we will be discussing some of the latest global developments from the elections in Nigeria to the overhaul of the National Electoral Institute in Mexico and much more. Tonight I'm joined by Valerie Ferguson, Farid Shah, Drew Wessels, Siraj Pundit, and Jacob Munter. So without further ado, let's dive in with Siraj kicking us off. Hey y'all, so uh, we're going to start off today with uh, the recent elections in Nigeria. Um, and so the current president-elect is a man by the name of Bola Tinubu. He is the former mayor of uh, Lagos, and he's a very powerful figure in Nigerian politics who uh, endorsed the current president, um, Muhammadu Buhari, and he has also endorsed and supported many of the other former leaders uh, of Lagos, which is one of the largest cities in Nigeria. And most of the candidates that he has supported or endorsed or backed, many of them have gone on to become um, elected. And, and so any, an endorsement from him or any sort of support from him has become synonymous with you will become the next leader. And so Bola Tinubu is an interesting character because um, he is currently the leader of the All Progressives Coalition Party, otherwise known as the APC, uh, which he helped create. Um, and currently, uh, Muhammadu Bahari is the is the leader of this party. Uh, now, the APC has been criticized for their inability to tackle a lot of the the main issues that have affected Nigeria, um, such as the issue of Boko Haram and very various Islamist groups in the north. Um, which you know, famously, you know, years back there was the incident where they where they kidnapped all those Nigerian schoolgirls. Uh, there's also the issue of um, corruption in politics and the. Uh, the large and, and gross mismanagement of Nigeria's oil reserves. Nigeria has uh, some of the largest um, oil reserves, uh, off, offshore oil reserves in the, in the world. And yet, uh, unfortunately, compared to many other oil producing nations, they have not had as successful of a time utilizing that oil and profiting off of that oil and ensuring that the profits of that oil go to developing the country instead of just going into the pockets of a few powerful leaders. And so um, this has been one of the various criticisms of the APC party. And uh, Bola Tinubu has, has pledged to address these issues, um, which uh, Muhammadu Bahari has been criticized for not being able to tackle, as well as the fact that um, Lagos currently has, has had a high rates of crime, um, which is another issue that Bola Tinubu has uh, promised to address. So now to get to the numbers of the electoral votes. So in the final tally, Mr. Tinubu um, won 8.7 million votes, or roughly about 36% of the vote, avoiding a runoff. Uh, now, um, the person running against him, another man running against him, was a man by the name of Mr. Abu Bakr, who won 6.9 million votes. Uh, and then the third candidate, Mr. Obi, won 6.1 million votes. Now, under Nigerian law, uh, someone needs to, in order for someone to win, um, they need to win most of the votes, as well as 26, 25% of the vote in two-thirds of the nation's uh, 36 states. Um, and so, in response to Mr. Tanubu um, earning most of the votes, uh, Mr. Abu Bakr and Mr. Obi uh, have both said that they are going to contest um, the results of this election, uh, although clarifying that they would do it through legal and peaceful means. Now, why would they contest the election? Well, um, according to uh, Mr. Obi's running mate, a man by the name of Yusuf Dati Baba Ahmed, he claimed that um, violence, voter intimidation, uh, voter suppression had tainted the election and that um, unfair tactics were used to essentially ensure uh, Mr. Tanubu's victory. Um, now, although 
you know, one could part, partially dismiss this as, uh, you know, as un, unbased accusations and that, you know, this is just an attempt by someone to undermine an election which they lost. Uh, there is a history of um, unfair elections in, in Nigeria, and many have criticized Mr. Buhari's government um, for security problems, um, not you know ensuring the safety of, of people, not ensuring the safety of voters. And so there is reasonable concern as to you know why people would fear that the Nigerian elections may be compromised. However, um, you know nothing is clear yet. There is no clear proof yet. And so we'll see going forward what happens. But as of now, Mr. Tinubu is the president-elect, and we'll see how he does in tackling the, the problems that Nigeria faces. Now to pass the mic off on to Valerie, who will be talking of, talking to us about the recent developments in Mexico. Dressed in pink and chanting, hands off my vote, over 100,000 people took to the streets in Mexico against the electoral law changes. President Lopez Obrador is driving to overhaul the National Electoral Institute that was approved by Congress last week. The INE was key in creating the current pluralistic democracy that ended the decades-long one-party rule. The INE is an autonomous public body that is responsible for the oversight of Mexico's federal elections and also works with the local elections. Critics are calling for a slash within the Institute's budget because the president states that the Institute is too expensive and is biased towards his opponents. In addition to that, it would also lower sanctions for candidates who do not report on government spending and funding for local elections, which prior to this, um, before 2000, whenever the pluralistic democracy was introduced, the president was able to appoint the new leader in Mexico, and so bunch of many funds were used towards this appointment. Okay, so Mexico Senate approved this reform with 72 votes for and 50 against. Demonstrators are worried that this will turn Mexico's government back to a one-party system like before, so they are hoping protests will continue and throughout the coming weeks. Up next, you're kicking the conversation off to China. Last Wednesday, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing's Great Hall of the People to discuss cooperation on key areas. This visit comes as Western powers, such as the United States, have warned China against providing lethal support to Russian forces in the war in Ukraine. Alexander Lukashenko is known to be a close ally of Vladimir Putin, Belarus being one of the only nations to have openly shown support of Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine. In fact, Lukashenko authorized Russian troops to use Belarus to stage their initial assault. This is the first time she and Lukashenko have met in person since September, when they agreed to upgrade their ties to an all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. However, on Wednesday, China and Belarus expressed deep concern about the ongoing conflict and showed interest in the endeavor to end the war in Ukraine and establish peace as soon as possible. More about China from Varj. Thank you, Natalia. Building off of what you said, China has sought to involve itself further in the currently year-long conflict in Ukraine so far, having called for a ceasefire and peace talks between both Russia and Ukraine, as well as outlining a peace plan of sorts to end the conflict. So the plan, which was unveiled by China's foreign ministry, has 12 key points, and most of it is generic boilerplate stuff that you find on any like peace agreement, such as protecting uh, prisoners of war, humanitarian relief for civilians, reducing the risk of nuclear conflict, and opening grain corridors, which has been a big point in the global south, as a lot of these countries are relying on Ukraine, which is considered the breadbasket of the world, for their grains. 
However, there have been some points in this peace deal that have drawn controversy, such as one point calling for ending the Cold War mentality in the expanding military blocs, which is kind of seen as a direct dig of by China at um, Russia's claims of NATO expansionism that has been using to justify its invasion of Ukraine in order to defend its borders, as well as a call for ending unilateral sanctions, which are those sanctions that are authorized by one party and not approved by the UN Security Council. The prime target in this conflict of these unilateral sanctions has been Russia, which have been used to cripple its economy to a devastating effect. So having that provision in there has definitely been seen as very pro-Russian on the part of China. And China also has an offer to help rebuild Ukraine and rebuild its infrastructure. And many are cynically seeing this as an attempt by which it can essentially cash in on the country's immense needs after a conflict and potentially expand on its already existing Belt and Road Initiative in Europe. One thing that this agreement does not do, which uh, many people have drawn a lot of attention to, is the fact that it does not call for Russian troops to withdraw from Ukraine. And one point of it is that it calls for respecting territorial sovereignty. And as Russia, if you guys remember, it it officially annexed four territories of Ukraine in, I think, the Donbass region and declared them as official territory of the Russian Federation. That means that these territories are likely to be recognized by China as belonging to Russia. And as such, they will not be required to withdraw from these territories. A lot of Western powers like the U.S. and Germany have really just dismissed the offer, citing how China has been fairly pro-Russia for the duration of the conflict, offering it an economic lifeline and ensuring it gets access to technologies such as microchips, which have the potential to be used in weapon systems. It's also been pretty mum on recent Russian actions like withdrawing from the new nuclear START treaty and their continued escalations of the conflict in Ukraine. And they've also recently abstained from voting on a UN resolution that actually called for Russian troops to leave Ukrainian territory. So many in the West are kind of seeing this like peace talk as very one side as a way to kind of end this conflict on terms that Putin finds favorable rather than just ending this conflict. However, interestingly enough, Russia also does not support this plan, saying that the on-the-ground realities are still not in a place where they needed to be in order to reach a peace deal. So the only country that actually is in favor of this peace deal is in, in Europe right now is Hungary. So with that in mind, I do have a question for you guys that, as Antalya also mentioned recently, that there is like supposed claims that China is sending weapons to Ukraine. Do you feel that it is in China's best interest for this war to end relatively sooner or for it to be prolonged as long as possible? So my belief right now is that China has a vested interest in this war ending soon as one of the only countries that has really been like a consistent ally for Russia. It's seen a lot of like backlash to that as many countries kind of just really punish it for its participation in supporting Russia, which has very clearly become very unpopular in this conflict. So it's very much in its interest to present itself as a neutral mediator and as a diplomatic like success in that it's able to get both these countries to the negotiating table in a relatively quick manner. However, on the other hand, I do feel that in a way, a longer war in Ukraine could also be beneficial to China in that the longer the war goes on, the more and more Western powers like the US will have to keep funding Ukraine's military and supplying it with weapons. and. A big issue that's come up in Ukraine is that a lot of these countries, are their military logistics are getting strained by the sheer amount of weapons they're sending to Ukraine and that they're starting to face a lot of shortages. And the U.S.'s uh, support for other allies like Taiwan has been taking a backseat to this, such as a lot of weapons like Stinger missiles and Abrams tanks that the U.S. has agreed to sell to Taiwan. They're not able to fill those sales at the moment, and the longer the Ukraine go, war goes on, the less 
weapons Taiwan can get in a timely manner. So in a way, the longer the Chinese are able to bog the U.S. down in a conflict in Ukraine, the less weapons can go to Taiwan and thus make any potential invasion in the recent times sooner. So that's just kind of like two perspectives I have on it, if anyone else has anything to say. I would think that uh, China would want to end the war as soon as possible, being that they are uh, allied with Russia, just kind of, you know, jumping off of what you're saying. Uh, But being allied with Russia and then Russia losing this war so badly, kind of, it looks embarrassing, especially reflecting back on China. And then we also have to think, uh, how much is Russia asking for from China? Are they asking for weapons? Are they they asking for any kind of other support? Uh, How... How much does China actually want to invest in a war that uh, seems like it's going nowhere? All right, thank you. And sticking with China, we are now going to pass it over to Drew. Drew? Hello. So some other news in the realm of China's geopolitics at the moment is a series of notable U.S. economic maneuvers. So this week, the Biden administration officially announced that it's considering revoking export licenses that had been previously issued to U.S. suppliers who sell to Huawei Technologies Corporation, which is a very large Chinese telecom company. And the U.S. companies that are the target of these revoked licenses are Qualcomm, Inc., and Intel Core, both of which provide chips needed for smartphones and other devices like, potentially, advanced weapon systems. And the administration's proposed action would cover products that use 5G and 4G products as well. And this week, in testimony to the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, the Commerce Department's Undersecretary for Industry mentioned that Roughly 70% of the export control license applications last year involving China had been approved, and so revoking these licenses would probably be unpopular with these companies, and so there's a bit of pushback here. Given that much of these companies' domestic research and development funds come from these exports, so given that these proposed revocations of the licenses are um, still in deliberations, we'll have to see what happens here. In some other economic news, the House Foreign Affairs Committee took up a piece of legislation that would ban Chinese-owned TikTok in the U.S., making it unavailable on app stores or even on Americans' phones. And also, the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party held its first hearing this week, uh, basically looking to see, kind of uh, describe the threat that Beijing really poses to the United States' interests. And now to finish it off, we have Jacob, who will be talking about deforestation in the Amazon. Guys, uh, last semester I took some time out of the podcast to talk about the uh, elections in Brazil. This was around October, November, uh, with uh, Bolsonaro, the populist leader, uh, going out of office, and Lula being reelected. And I just kind of want to talk about uh, how elections uh, in South America, specifically uh, countries bordering the Amazon, affect um, Amazon degradation, Amazonian uh, deforestation. So basically, uh, rates of deforestation in the Amazon have been fluctuating with the policies and uh, inf- inefficiencies of presidential administrations for a very long time. Uh, after the election of Bolsonaro, uh, deforestation in the Amazon increased very rapidly, uh, You know, starting wildfires, endangering wildlife, and displacing indigenous peoples. Um, but now with the re-election of uh, President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, Uh, comes a promise of a de-escalation of these uh, deforestation practices uh, at a both state and private level. Um, And basically today I just want to talk about the ramifications of deforestation on climate change in the Amazon 
and how it has escalated since the 80s and uh, will continue to get worse without uh, action. Um, so in Brazil, the recent presidential election may seem like a good shift in deforestation practices, but um, as evidence I'm going to bring up uh, suggests this actually isn't the case. Um, but with President Bolsonaro, he relaxed many uh, regulations and policies uh, that uh, kept uh, mining, logging, uh, and uh, slash and burning under control in the Amazon. But uh, Lula da Silva promised to bring back a lot of the regulations that were there during his time in presidency uh, in the early 2000s. But uh, more specifically, the elections themselves may be actually driving the deforestation, as it may be the case that inefficiencies of government institutions around uh, election cycles may not be up to par. Um, According to a uh, journal article in uh, the Land Use Policy uh, of Brazil, uh, election, uh, the title of the article is Election-Driven Weakening of Deforestation Control in the Brazilian Amazon. Uh, the articles tackle the piece um, claiming that the loss of governmental control over rates of deforestation in the Amazon are most likely due to inefficiency and mismanagement of resources associated with the regime change in Brazil. They look at several drivers of deforestation in the Amazon, such as the prices of soy, beef, and timber, as well as currency exchange rates from Brazilian reis to U.S. dollars, and uh, using several models uh, to showcase the drivers of deforestation in their relationship to regime change in Brazil. The authors were able to determine that a final hidden cause of deforestation lies somewhere in the institutional structure of the Brazilian government. They found that the highest peaks in deforestation were actually in transitional periods of uh, government. Uh, rather than the peaks and valleys of prices of important Brazilian commodities requiring land use such as soy and livestock farming. Uh, they concluded that the decrease in efficiency and power of key government institutions as they turn over control and employment, such as those uh, in land use management, such as the IBIMA or the Brazilian Institute for Environmental and Renewable Natural Resources, uh, caused the biggest increase uh, in deforestation because they become so inefficient during uh, re-election cycles. Pr uh, new presidents come in, clean house. Now nobody's there to make sure that the uh, proper regulations are in place and actually still holding. Um, it, but now I kind of want to look more at what's going to happen if the Amazon is depleted. And I'm going to be referring to an article in the Journal of Geophysical Research uh, titled The Local and Global Effects of Amazon Deforestation. Um, in this piece, the authors investigate the changes in climate and their relation to land cover and deforestation in the Amazon rainforest and using some science stuff that I don't really understand uh, called the Goddard Institute of Space Studies Model 2 Global Climate Model, they uh, determined that the uh, significance, they, they use this model to determine a significance of a deforestation signal in the Amazon on world climate change. Uh, in doing so, they created six control simulations and six uh, deforested uh, simulations. And according to their findings, the effect of deforestation on the Amazon is uh, quite significant and on the rest of the world, with extreme reductions in precipitation and cl cloud cover, especially uh, in South America. Um, however, as stated, their findings were not limited to the changes in the Amazon rainforest. Using this method, they detected disturbances uh, all over the world. Uh, specifically, they noted that a uh, significant reduction in precipitation uh, premeditated by deforestation in the Amazon were found in the Gulf of Mexico, the West Pacific, the Indian Ocean, 
and uh, the rest of Central America, uh, making this really a global issue. And uh, finally, their findings concluded that deforestation in the Amazon will coincide to a devastating deficit in global precipitation during the August-September raining season, which is uh, very important to global harvests. So basically, um, if election cycles don't come under control with how they handle regime change and institution change, it could be a very big problem for the rest of the world, and especially in handling uh, climate change. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode of International Sensations. Thank you all for listening, and hook'em horns.